Thank you again for the privilege of uh, coming to be with you uh, this morning and and to bring you a word from God's Word. You mentioned uh, the Weather Channel. Weather Channel is MTV for adults, so just so you'll have an understanding of that. At uh, the church I served in Lexington, our philosophy on snow was... uh, you don't need to call the church office, call Walmart. And if Walmart's open, we're open. We had, uh, I think one of the most embarrassing things I had, Brother Dave, as a pastor, was that got up early on a Sunday morning and my building superintendent called and said they're not able to get the parking lot scraped and couldn't get the, the ice off of it. It was so cold and and I had several of my leaders, deacon, chairman, whatever, call. I'm, we're not going to be able to get out. And so we canceled church that morning. We, you had to make a decision early. And we said, all right, we don't want anybody to get hurt. Canceled church. And about 10 o'clock, everything melted. And so I told after that, I said, I'm never canceling again. If you can't make it, don't make it. Uh, take care of yourself. Be careful. Be safe. And put that. But if you want to know if we're open, uh, call Walmart. And if you can get there, you can get to get to the house of God. So... That's just kind of my philosophy, so I'm glad to be here. Slid on in, you know, slid in from Charleston last night, so uh, glad to be here. Had a busy week, good week. We spent uh, a week with a bunch of, well, not all of them were young. We had a couple of guys, uh, fairly old, but did a doctoral seminar this week and met with some pastors and talked about church revitalization and had a a youth evangelism conference in Charleston last night, or uh, Friday night and Saturday. And uh, it was a really, really good event uh, for students. Had students from all over the state come. And, and so it, uh, we had a great time. And uh, it always, it's one of those things, you hate doing it in, no, in uh, January because of the weather. It's always, you just, just never know what's going to happen. But uh, God blessed, and, and uh, we saw a lot of kids come. And so it was, it was a good Really, really good event. Again, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And I hope you'll keep your Bible open. Uh, When I chose this illustration for the message, I did not think about uh, WVU basketball, and I'm sorry that uh, the Mountaineers didn't do so well uh, against Tech. But they'll come back. So just kind of ignore that. Pittsburgh's playing today, so kind of focus on that, you know, wherever your mind is in, in the sporting world. It was March 1975, and it was the very last game of the season between the University of Kentucky and Vanderbilt. And whoever won that particular game in the regular season was going to represent the SEC and the NCAA tournament, so it was a huge game. There were 12 seconds left. Kentucky was down by one, and they drove the ball down the court, took the shot, made it, and now they're ahead by one. Vanderbilt was without a timeout, and so in a panic, the Vanderbilt player, one of the players, grabbed the the basketball, stepped out of bounds, threw it the length of the court, and the ball goes in the goal. And I mean, pandemonium broke out. on the court, it was at Vanderbilt's uh, stadium or at their coliseum, and I mean, pandemonium broke out because they thought they had won the game. When the referees were finally able to restore order, the ruling was because he didn't properly inbound the ball. That was a goal that didn't count. Vanderbilt ended up losing the game, and the evil empire went on to the NCAA. Y'all know what I'm talking about. All right. 
<laughs> well, there's sometimes in our lives that we set goals of what we want to do as a Christian and what we want to be as a Christian, and while they may be good goals, they're not worthy goals. While they may be good goals, they're goals that when you think about in the kingdom of God, they are goals that really just don't count. In a bigger picture, more intimate picture, perhaps for your church, your church is getting ready and and in the process that within some time over the next whenever, you're going to be calling a new pastor. And oftentimes in our mind, we're thinking as a church, and maybe you're thinking this, if we can just get the right guy, it'll turn our church around. It'll be, it'll be the answer for our church. Well, I'm going to let you into a little secret. Doesn't matter who you call as being the pastor, calling a pastor is not going to be the silver bullet for your church. It's not the magic answer. Doesn't matter who you call, doesn't matter who he is. There are many other things that have to come into play because it's not just about getting the right person. It is about the church being ready for a pastor to come and to lead them to be the church that God wants them to be. And that's the point of the message. While it is important, and I hope you are praying every day for your pastor search committee, God, as you said, Brother Dave, God's already chosen a man to be here at this church that's going to fill this pulpit, that's going to be leading your church as the pastor. And you say, well, what, what are we supposed to do? Well, well, that's where this text comes in. It's understanding there is preparation time that when he arrives, this church ought to be ready to go and to do the things that God wants you to do, being led by your new pastor, but your heart is ready to move. See, the first verses that Brother Dave read, starting there in verse 4, Paul kind of lays out his resume for us. And he talks about all these things of who he was. He was the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the Jews of the Jews. I mean, he was this man who had a misguided passion for God, and then God arrested him there on that road to Damascus. And his life was forever changed. And his life became not about the things that he could achieve. It wasn't about his his personal achievements. It was about him selling himself out so that he could become exactly what God wanted him to be. His life changed radically at that moment. And then he says, here's what I believe we ought to be. Here are goals that we ought to have for our life. Here's, here's the end result of our life and what we ought to be striving for while we are on this earth, regardless of how old you are, how young you are, regardless of where you are in your spiritual life. Here are four things that everybody in here ought to be doing, ought to set as a goal for themselves. You say, how do I prepare myself for the, the next phase of my church? Here's four goals. The first is that you would know Christ's person. See, a worthy goal, a worthy step for ourselves to say, here's here's what I'm going to do as a church. Here's what I'm going to do as an individual. I'm going to set for myself that I would know the person of Christ. Now, here's what the passage says. Look at verse 10. Keep your Bible open. He says, that I might know Christ, that I might know 
Him. If you're new to the Bible, it's understanding that the Bible originally was not written in English. It'd be really cool if it was, but it wasn't. The Old Testament was written primarily in a language called Hebrew. reason is because it was written by the Hebrews for the Hebrews, and so it was written in the, in the language of the day, which was called Hebrew. The New Testament was written in the language of that day, which primarily was Greek. Most of the New Testament is written in the language of Greek. This word where he says that I might know him... The word know there is a very clear, very specific word. It doesn't mean just to to have factual knowledge about Jesus. Now, head knowledge is important. 1 John 5, 13. John says, These things I've written unto you, that you may know that you have eternal life, even to them that believe on His name. That word know means to have that head knowledge. You see, the, uh, salvation involves not just the heart, it involves the head. God's not, not asking you to make an unintellectual decision about Jesus. If you're not a believer, it's not just about having an emotional decision to follow Christ. It's about looking at the facts of what the Bible says about Christ and believing those facts and surrendering the, to those facts. So there, there is that, that, that head knowledge that's involved. But this particular word is a word that means to know something by experience. You have factual knowledge, but you have experiential knowledge. Well, we, we have that in, in life, don't we? Brother Dave was telling me he trains uh, people at work, well, there's a difference between learning something where you open the book and you learn it, and then when you get out on the floor and you have to learn how to do it and you learn it by that level of experience. There's more of an intimacy in an experiential knowledge than there is in a book knowledge. Now, that speaks two things to us, a couple of things. One is it speaks to those of you, to all of us, about salvation. One of the things we're, we're finding about West Virginia is that West Virginia is very difficult to reach for Christ because there are so many people that believe they're saved simply because they have a head knowledge about God. You know, I, I, I went, I, I've had people say, well, you know, the reason I'm saved, I went to Bible school. I went to vacation Bible school when I was seven years old. The reason why I'm saved is because my grandma's saved. The reason why I'm saved is, I, you know, I know that Jesus... Uh, is God? I, I, I believe. I believe those things. I, you know, I, I believe He walked on the water. I, I believe He raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, I, I believe those things. I, I know those things. There's that that head knowledge about that. But you see, that's why James says, "You believe in God, you do well." But the demons believe and they tremble. Salvation is not just about having that head knowledge of the things about God. It is about an experiential knowledge in which we develop an intimacy with Christ that comes because we've repented of our sin and we've turned from our past and we have trusted in Christ as our Savior. But then it is also something that deals with us as believers. How many of us, you say, well, you know, I, now I'm genuinely saved. I know that I'm saved. I, I've trusted in Christ. I, I've repented of my sins. I, I, I've done that. But how many of you have a greater knowledge of Jesus now and a greater relationship with Jesus now than you did 
three years ago, five years ago, three months ago. So you want to prepare for the coming of your new pastor. It would be that it would be a house full of people that has such a passion for God that they are growing in their relationship with Him. The psalmist, Psalm 42, says that as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. Now think of the imagery of that. It is that deer that takes that normal path, that normal path of protection, knowing how it should walk and where it should go to to avoid danger. But when it reaches that point of absolute thirst, not just that it would like a drink of water, but it is literally panting for the water. It'll do whatever it has to take to find water to to quench its thirst. It, it, it is that imagery for us as believers. It is saying that we have such a thirst for God, such a thirst for God and the things of God, that we will do whatever we've got to do to quench that thirst, to find God, to be with God, to be immersed with God, recognizing that He's the only thing that can fill our lives. You see, in our lives we set all kinds of goals for ourselves. And we make the mistake of trying to separate spiritual goals with what you would call secular goals or goals that we have when we're here at church and then goals that we have the rest of our life and we make the, the, the big mistake of trying to separate those kinds of things. Well, you need to understand that once you gave your life to Christ, all of your goal was about Him. And everything that we do is about Him. Now, why? Because that's the only thing that's going to quench the thirst. You can strive out of, out of wealth and you can have all of the money that you could, you could possibly desire and it still doesn't quench your thirst. You could strive after, after a, an education and all that intellectualism can give and you can have all of the degrees that you could possibly earn and it's never going to quench the thirst that's in your life. You can try, try to have all of the position and the power and all that happens is the more power that you get, the more power you're going to desire. Why? Because that is a thirst that will never be quenched. The only thing that will satisfy your life. And here's what Paul is saying. He says, man, I had all that stuff. I had power. I had position. I had money. I had everything you could desire in life. And I was empty until I met Christ. And the greatest thing that I could do would be to know Him. Christian, do you know Christ? My wife and I have been married uh, 42 years. Just celebrated our 42nd anniversary. Which, uh, you know, for an anniversary gift, what do you do? You go see the grandkids. That's, you know, <laughs> I don't have to buy anything, you know, that kind of thing. But here's what's so funny. We, we, started, we started dating in college. We got married in college, which I don't advise anybody. Don't follow my example. That's a bad example. <laughs> you can't afford to get married in college. We got married in college and, uh, uh, you know, sort of knew each other. But it was one of those things, I mean, I'll be honest with you, she really did, you know, didn't know me. I called dating the great lie. Because, you know, when, when I'm courting my wife, you know, I'm actually, I'll comb my hair and brush my teeth and open the door for her and, 
you know, do stuff like that because I'm just hoping some woman would, would like me, you know, that kind of thing. And you, you finally get married and you sort of settle down and, and now she knows me. And the funny thing is, we've been married so long, I'm, and I guess a lot of guys, I think a lot of preachers are, maybe this is the qualification to be a preacher, you've got to be ADD, you just have to be everywhere. You know, my, I, I, can, I can carry on a conversation with you, and I'll stop it and carry on one with you, and one with you, one with you, and then I'll come back to this one. You know, I'm just, I'm all over the place. And she's gotten used to me, and I can start a sentence, and I'll stop and go to somewhere else, and she'll finish that sentence for me. She knows me that well. I mean, it's, it's sort of funny. I'll, I'll try to make some joke with her and say something, and she said, I knew you were going to say that. The reason is because she knows me by experience. I've told that same joke a thousand times. So she knows me by experience. One of the reasons why I married her is because she'd laugh at my jokes. You know, I'm just, I'm not funny. And so you find a woman who'll laugh, you know. Marry her right away. You know, she thinks you're funny. Marry her right away. Well, that's what I did while I was in college. Man, I thought, well, she'll laugh at my jokes. I'm going to marry her right away so she can't get away from me. Well, it's to know Christ. Can you finish His sentences? You know, when I, when I close my eyes, I, I can see the image of, of my wife and I can see her face. And I know the color of her eyes. Because I've looked into her eyes for 42, really longer than that, because we dated for, for a year and a half or so before we got married. Know the color of Christ's eyes? Do you know the contour of His face? Do you know the wrinkles that are there? See, that's what experiential knowledge is. That's, it's knowing Him like that. It's saying, I know Christ. See, that's a goal. See, look at your life and ask the question, do I, do I really know Christ in an intimate way? Not just in a superficial way, but do I really know Christ's person? Set that as a goal for yourself. Begin that process. Second thing is, is to... Uh, not only to, to know Christ's person, but it's to know His His power. To know His power. He says, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. That word power is a word that deals with the effect of something. It's not just the idea that you see it at work. But it is that you you are affected by it, that it makes a a difference in your life, that it, it has something to do with what you do. You see, the the, the whole idea of the of the power of Christ to to know His power. Go back to Ephesians. Make a note of Ephesians chapter one, verse nineteen through twenty two. It describes what this power is. It is the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. It is the power that sets Jesus at the right hand of the Father in glory. It is the power that subjected everything in the universe to the authority of Christ. And it is the power that put, put Christ as the head of the church. See, that is the power of the resurrection. Now, here's what you've got to understand. 
The very power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the power that He makes available to you to live the Christian life. One of the the mistakes that we've made as Christians is we'll say, well, I can understand how Jesus did what He did. He was God come in the flesh because He's God. He's God, I'm not, I can understand that. But in understanding that Jesus became a man like us, where the Scripture says that He was tempted in every way that we were tempted, yet without sin, how is it that Christ was able to live that perfect life? It was because He totally and absolutely surrendered Himself in obedience to the Father. Read Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 says... That though he was equal with God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, he chose and became a slave. Took on, though he was in, literally what it says, he was in the form of God. And that form means the very essence of who God is. As much God the Father as God, God the Son is God. And though he was in the form of God, he took upon himself the form, the very essence of being a slave, and was obedient unto God even to the point of death. Here's what that means. It means that When Jesus became a human being, which He was as much human as you and I are human, it wasn't just He was partial human, it wasn't just that He had the physical attributes of being human, He was as human as you are. He was human in body, He was human in emotion, He was human in every aspect that you are a human being, and yet He was without sin. At any moment, He could have chosen to use His divinity. And yet He chose not to use His divinity, but instead chose to use obedience as a means by which He would live that perfect life, that sinless life. You realize that if He had not used, if He had not lived a sinless life, He could not have been the sacrifice. Now, the great debate and what will keep you up at night is trying to figure out, well, understanding He is fully God and He could not sin. But as a human being, he chose not to sin. And if you don't fully understand that, that is debated in the halls of academia every day. So it's one of those difficult, very difficult things to understand. But here's the thing. If Jesus only chose not to sin because he was God and he could not sin, it would have no effect on us. We would say, well, I have a full excuse. But if Jesus chose to use the power of God through the obedience to the Father, so that all of this was made subject to Him and in His use, then it helps us understand how you and I can live an effective, fruitful, holy Christian life. So don't use the excuse, well, I'm just human and I fall into temptation. Yes, that is true. We all fall into temptation. We are all in the flesh. So the problems of the church is not the problems of the Spirit. The problems of the church is the problems of the flesh. But God makes available to you. Now listen to me. God makes available to you as a Christian the very power 
that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the power that God makes available to you to live the Christian life. You hear that? The very power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the power that He makes available to us to live the Christian life. And so, here's the goal to set. God, I want to know Your power in the same way that Christ was obedient as the Son of God. As Christ was obedient in the flesh to You, teach me to be obedient like that. May I know His person. May I have a a passion to know Him in every possible way that I can know Him, but in knowing Him, may I know Your power that I might live the Christian life. Man, what a great goal to set for yourself this year. So it's not just to know His person and to know His power, but Paul then says a third goal that, that's a good goal to set. You want to prepare yourself for, for your pastor's coming? It would be to know Christ's passion. To know his passion. Look what he look at what he says. He says that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. That word fellowship, you know, we use as Baptists, we use the word fellowship in a lot of ways. We have fellowship dinner, you know. Uh I wasn't raised in church, but when I finally figured out the Baptist fed you, I, I became a Baptist. That's what, you know. <laughs> that really wasn't the reason why I became a Baptist, but it, it's a good reason. Uh, but but that's not what what this word's talking about. This word fellowship is a word that that deals with a oneness with something. See, genuine fellowship in the church is not just about the fact that we share a meal together. It's not even that we, like we did last Sunday, that we do the Lord's Supper together. That we do it congregationally. It is about in all of the things that we do, that we develop a oneness with each other. A connection with each other. That's what the church is. It is a oneness that we are the body of Christ. And there's a oneness that, that, that comes out, out of all of that. Well, one of the things that we want to do is that we want to develop a oneness with the sufferings of Jesus. Now, here's what you have to ask the question. What is it that caused Jesus to suffer? In fact, 42 times in the New Testament, the Bible talks about sufferings. Sometimes it, it deals with the sufferings of Christ. Sometimes it deals with the sufferings of believers. What is it? Why did Jesus suffer? Did, did He die on the cross? Was He hanging on the cross and the Father, when He cries out and He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, the Father turns His back on the Son. For the very first time in His existence, He was not one with the Father. Understand that Christ has always existed. The Father has always existed. God has always existed. And yet there at the cross, the Father turns His back on His Son. That is why Christ struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't over the fact that He would die because He knew He would be raised from the dead. It was over the fact that He would become sin for us. Why did He do that? Would it be so that... You wouldn't get sick? 
Would it be so that you'd have a little more money? I mean, listen to some preachers on TV. They'll tell you that the reason why Jesus died is so that you don't get sick. So you'll have a lot more money in your pocket. I mean, is that why, I mean, is that why Jesus died? Was it so that we would just be happy? No, the, the reason why Jesus died was to save us from our sins. The reason why He died on the cross is because the one thing that we could not do ourselves that only God could do would be to provide eternal life for us. You say, so what does it mean to fellowship in the sufferings of Christ? It is understanding the passion that Jesus had when He cries out and He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings like a mother hen does her chicks, but you would not. It's the passion... When Jesus looks out on the crowd that is mocking Him, the very people that He's dying for, and they're mocking Him, and He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He would set a goal and say, man, I, how can I be ready that when God brings us a new pastor and our church starts heading in the direction God wants us to go, how can I be ready for that? Have a passion for the things that Christ was passionate about. Have a love for lost people. Eighty-seven percent of West Virginians do not know Jesus. Eighty-four percent of West Virginians are not in church on any given Sunday. Eighty-four percent. How are we going to make an impact? How are we going to make a difference in our state? The answer is no. Be in fellowship with the sufferings, with the passion of Christ. Here's the last thing. What's the final goal that I could say? Well, it's to know His person. It's to know His power. It's to know His passion. But then it's also that I might know Christ's piety. Piety deals with the holiness of Christ. That I would be conformed to His death. That word conformed is a word that means to be shaped or molded by something. We are shaped and molded by a lot of things. What he's saying is that we would be molded by the very death of Christ, be shaped into the image of His death. So the Bible says, Jesus said in Luke 9, He says, if anybody's going to come after me, it's Luke 9, 23, If anyone is going to come after me, let him first die to himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Die to self. That's what it means to be conformed into his death. It is that the death of Christ changes everything about us. So we're living in, in a culture that has very much, and I think I mentioned this last week, and you'll hear a lot, I'll probably mention it a lot, but we have moved out of this postmodern culture into this post-Christian culture to where there's an anti-Christian perspective about what the world has. And those of you that are older remember the days when, when Moundsville Baptist used to have something and everybody in the community used to show up. Now you have something you can't even get your own people to show up, much less the community. And you wonder, how are we going to reach 
Moundsville with the gospel. How are we going to make a difference in the world? The answer is, we've got to die to self. One of the problems that all of us face, especially in the world today, is that we've got to learn. We often equate personal preference with gospel transformation. And what we've got to learn to do, and I, let me just speak very clearly, man, if we're going to reach this world, we've got to learn we don't embrace the world. We're not to be conformed to the world, but we'd better learn to engage our world. We're not in a Christian culture any longer, on the most part. And even here in West Virginia, there's just not that Christian culture. I was watching a uh, a video by the Prime Minister of Canada yesterday, and he was dealing with the issue that if you're pro-life, you're essentially an enemy of the state of Canada. Now, that's a very uh, very dangerous statement for he to make, but, but that is the kind of world in which we live, that if you believe in the sanctity of life and believe that life begins at conception, that you are odd in this world. How are we going to reach a world that believes that killing an unborn child is okay? The answer is, folks, we've got to learn to give up personal preference and learn to engage our culture. It's difficult to do, I know, because we're all guilty of preference, aren't we? We like certain things a certain way, and we have certain expectations of how it ought to be. And it's not just an old geezer idea. I mean, everybody's that way. We've got our preferences of what we want to do. But here's the thing. When it says that I would be conformed to the image of the death of Christ and the piety of Christ of who He is, it means that I set aside preferences and I set aside culture and I become like Jesus. One of the things that I have heard so many, many, many times, people will say, well, you know, that's just how, when they, when they deal with, with cultural norm and, and, and behavior and character and things like that, they say, well, that's just how my generation is. Uh, since I've been here in West Virginia, I'll have, I'll have people say, well, you know, that's just how West Virginians are. Well, if you're not a believer, that's okay to define it that way. But let me tell you something. If you as a Christian define yourself by your generation or define yourself by your place of birth, you are denying the transformational power of the gospel. We are not to be defined of where we were born. We're not to be defined by our generation. We're not to be defined by our culture. Folks, we're to be defined by who Christ is and His character. Can I get an amen from the congregation? And I realize, man, those words are hard to accept. You can go to Walmart this afternoon and get a little preacher bill doll and stick pins in it this afternoon if if that'll help. You know, that's okay. I'll be far enough away the pins won't bother me. (laughs) 
But that's why, you say, why, why is the church not reaching people? It is because we are characterized by our culture, we are characterized by our generation, we are characterized by our locale. When we are known, we wear the colors of our location rather than wearing the colors of Christ. And that's why we have preferences. At, at my last church... I got time. My last church, we were we were trying to make that transition because I was in Lexington, Kentucky, which, believe it or not, Lexington was a very intellectual town. It was a very liberal town. Uh, it wasn't an industrial town. It was it was driven by education and and driven by uh, technology. It was a technological town. And so I had more PhDs in my church you could shake, it, shake a stick at. You know, that having a degree didn't matter. They had more degrees than a thermometer. Uh, you know. So we're trying to figure out how we're going to reach this very intellectual, this very technologically savvy, this very socially liberal town. And, and there, there was struggle because, you know... My church, the church I pastored, they started, y'all started in 1903, we started in 1908. Y'all were older than us. We, we were, started in 1908, and so there were certain preferences and ways you did things, and, and, you know, we struggled with that, trying to say, look, it, it can't be about preference, it's got to be about engaging our culture with, with the gospel. And one Sunday, a young lady shows up in our church, her name was Tiff. And Tiff had purple hair. And she had tattoos on her arms, and she had piercings all over. I told her she was a better man than me. I don't know how she got... I couldn't... I, I got, I'm too susceptible to pain. I'm a big baby when it comes to pain. Uh, but Tiff shows up with her purple hair and her, her piercings and her tattoos. And she comes to a very formal church, very a church that steeped in tradition, a hundred years of tradition. And the question is, how is our church going to embrace or engage Tiff? She was a student at the University of Kentucky, a master's degree student. And I, I was quite concerned because, you know, I had businessmen and doctors and lawyers and all kinds of people like that, and Tiff comes in and sits down and... And I think at first it was the kind of thing, well, that's okay. If Tiff wants to come and sit, that's okay. Let her come and sit. Next phase is she won't get saved. And the question would be, should Tiff get saved and get rid of her purple hair? Should Tiff get saved and wash off her tats? Should she get saved and get rid of her, her piercings? Well, then... The worst thing after that is Tiff got saved, and then she wanted to join the choir. And now up in the choir, we're going to have this purple-haired, tattooed, pierced girl up there to sing. And by that time, we weren't wearing robes no more. And so she would come during the spring and the summer with short sleeve shirts, and you'd see all her stuff. And it changed 
revolutionized our church to realize it's not about how somebody looks on the outside, it's about what Jesus does for them on the inside. And they loved her and accepted her and never treated her any different from anybody else in the church. And it was at that point that our church began began to change and we became a multicultural, multi-ethnic multi-generational congregation. I mean, we came, we became a church that we had real Chinese people getting saved. Not these fake Chinese folks. I mean, we had the real deal. These were people from China coming to UK to get their doctorates and they were coming to faith in Christ. And we had people coming out of South America. We had 12 different African nations in our church. And we didn't have these African American people. We had real Africans. I mean, we had the real deal. And they, they would always laugh when I'd say that. They loved it when I would say that. But what, what took it from being a, you know, upper middle class white church to becoming a church of all nations and a church of all ethnicities and a church that was reaching people that didn't look like them? It is when you decide, I'm no longer going to be driven by my preferences, but I'm going to be driven by the gospel. I'm no longer going to make what my preferences are. And we'll always have our preferences. But it's when those preferences do not take preference over the gospel. And the only way we can do that is we've got to die to self. If you've got some preferences that would make it tough for you to worship, if anything... And I'm going to use a dirty word. Y'all close your ears. I'm going to use a dirty word. Because if this church is going to reach people with the gospel, this church is going to have to change. And I know, I don't, I don't know about you, I don't like change. At my house, Dave, I've got my seat. And I will tell you, when I get home this afternoon, I will be in my seat. The kids and the grandkids know you don't sit in Papa's seat. That's where he sits. It's funny. They just learn that. They know that. But that is my preference. That is my... I wouldn't care. If, they, if any of my grandkids want to sit there, more power to them. You know, any of my kids sit there, get out of my seat. <laughs> my grandkids, you can sit there. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. You grandparents know exactly what I'm talking about. And you kids with kids know that once you had children... You just ignored by your parents, amen. I mean, that's just that's just how that's that's how it is. All right, that's just that's just life. But it's when we all have those preferences, but it's realizing that my preference cannot be more important than reaching people with the gospel. And it's for this church to develop a reputation that says we don't care who you are. We don't care where you're from. We don't care what you look like. We don't care how much money you have or how much money you don't have. We don't care the kind of clothes you wear or the kind of clothes that, that you, if you can't wear the kind of clothes that everybody else wears. We don't care about those things. What we care about is whether or not you know Jesus. And we're going to love you just like you are. You know why I started going to church, Dave? I wasn't raised in church. I started going to church because I found a group of people that loved me just like I was. That's why. 
That's, that, that's the reason why I started going. I didn't know what the church was like, and I didn't know whatever. And, and they accepted me and embraced me just the way that I was and said, we want you to be a part of what we're doing. That's what it's going to take for the church to reach people. So there's a lot of goals we can set. Man, there's all kinds of things we can say, this is what I want to accomplish this year. But as a church, as you prepare for your pastor and the man that God has chosen to lead your church, follow the goals. Prepare yourself. Take these next steps of what Paul says, that I would know Christ and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, and above all else, that I would be conformed into the image of His death. You do that, and your church will take the next steps ready to see God do something great here. Let me pray for us. Father, I I thank You for the message of the Gospel. And sometimes, Father, it's hard to to hear and to accept things because we're challenged to the very core of our being, of what we are and what we do and what we've been doing. And so, God, I pray that You would make a difference even now as we have a time to sing and to celebrate and to respond. And God, do a work now in the midst of this congregation. And it is in the name of our Savior Jesus that we pray together. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. It's just as I am. What a great hymn. It describes just in those simple words, here's what I'm going to present to God of what God does. God takes me just as I am. And then He makes me into what He wants me to be. If you're not a believer this morning, that's how we would invite you to come. You say, how do I come to Jesus? I mean, you don't understand all my baggage. You don't understand all my background. You don't understand my problems. No, I may not, but Jesus does. And what He asks you to do is to come to Him just as you are. He'll make you into what you need to be. But you can never start that path of becoming what you need to be until you start with a personal commitment to follow Christ. It's not just about knowing Him in your head. It is about that experiential relationship to say that I trust in Him. I live for Him. I give Him my life.